is everybody this morning? Welcome to week three of Mountain Moving Faith. I see a few new faces. So my name is Hannah, if this is your first time in a service with us. I have the pleasure of being on staff here at Coastal Family Church for about five or six years now. I think we've been here probably, gosh, we're coming up in 11 years of marriage in a month. So we've been with them for almost 12 years. Is that even possible to 11 years? It's been a long time. It's before we were married. Um, just a pleasure, and a, uh, you know, I'm blessed to have the opportunity to present to you guys this week, uh, week three. If you've not been with us for weeks one and two, I would love to encourage you to get on our podcast at CoastalFamilyChurch.com. Uh, Pastor Stephen has crushed it the past two weeks, just brought some powerful word to us, and I'm going to do my best to catch you back up today so you can jump in with us now, but I would strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to go back and get those first two weeks. When we came to um, our creative meeting, that's where we kind of meet to discuss the next series that we're coming into, and Pastor Stephen or Pastor Tiffany, whoever has the leading, comes to us and says, this is the direction we want to go, and this time he came to us with the scripture from Mark 11, 22 through 25, and he told us, you know, kind of just gave us his heart, and he wanted to approach it from a mountain-moving faith kind of direction, and I struggle with the abstract, and so I went home, and it's my job anyway to figure out how to take something that's abstract and kind of make it concrete. Uh, for visual purposes and creative purposes. And so the girls and I all went home and we kind of started pondering it. And so one morning I was sitting in my chair and I decided to Google it. And uh, I Googled, how do you remove mountains? Because I kind of know, but I didn't know, no. And I came across the word cutting. So cutting is actually when land is mechanically excavated, hand dug, or mainly in mountainous examples, blasted out with explosives. So then I went further in my research into dynamite, and I watched a 45-minute documentary on dynamite and the history of it. Josh came in to my bedroom that morning to get ready, and I'm sure he was not quite sure why I was calling that Bible study when I was watching a documentary on dynamite, but he went with it. Um, but the Holy Spirit really showed me something in the process. While I was watching it, there was a husband and wife team who, uh, they were engineers, and their job was actually to remove mountain or to remove structures in cities and areas like that without damaging the surrounding structures. And what they did was they created a plan, and then they sent in a team of people who actually created boreholes in the base of a structure. And this is kind of similar uh, in the mountainous example. They dig just holes. This is the same thing that they did to create the Panama Canal, but actually they did it in the ground. They dug uh, boreholes or blasting holes in the ground before they could put the dynamite into it. Um, same thing with Mount Rushmore. A lot of the rock that was chipped off was chipped off using dynamite. And the Holy Spirit began to show me something, and he said to me, long before something happens in your life, it has to happen in your heart. Long before something happens on the outside, it has to happen in the core of who you are. And in order for the dynamite to have its most uh, powerful impact, you have to go into the proper depth to get the most impact. You see, spiritually, mountains are actually internal. When you read Mark eleven twenty two through 25, Jesus isn't dealing with anything external. He's actually dealing with doubt and unbelief. He's dealing with unforgiveness, and he's dealing with the words that come out of your mouth. You see, long before something happens on the outside of you, it has to happen on the inside of you. And so week one, Pastor Stephen taught us about the, basics of forgive, uh, about the basics of faith. And he gave us some equipment, some of the equipment that we would need moving forward in the series. One of the things that he said that I loved was faith is not just empty positive confession. It is positive confession, but it's positive confession empowered by the word and the Holy Spirit in your life. 
And then another thing he says, it's not denying reality. And that's something that we're really good at. We uh, want to pretend like things are okay. And so we just pretend like if we ignore the mountain, the mountain's not there. Or sometimes we, uh, especially in the faith world, we, we say, well, I'm not sick or I'm not, my marriage is not struggling. We pretend those things aren't. But the reality is that there are mountains and there are things that uh, we face that there are realities in our life. And until we can admit them, we can't actually face them. And so he gave us the equipment in week one. The week two, we talked about forgiveness, and this was killer. I went back and pondered it because I knew I would be following behind him, you know, this week. And so I really went home to consider some of the things that he shared with us. And I laughed to myself a little bit because we live in one of the most offended cultures in the history of ever. Like everybody's offended about everything. Um, and Christians are the ones most known for their offense. I find it hilarious because we're the ones who have been the most forgiven, yet we have the inability, well, we have the ability, but we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to extend the most forgiveness and grace. And we should be the ones with the most uh, graciousness towards people. But offense is easier. And I think that's why we slip into it, because it's easier to place the uh, it's easier to place the responsibility for our behavior on how we were treated by somebody else. So they did that to me, so I have the right to behave in an ungodly manner because of what they did to me. And what happens with offense is this. How many people are married for over five years? Married over five years? You're going to relate to this one. Offenses are little things that turn into a big thing. If you've ever been married, and uh, I wasn't a very good cook in the beginning. I, I, it took me a lot of years um, and a really good friend to help me learn. But something that could happen, this doesn't actually happen in my marriage, so I'm going to pick on this one, is imagine Josh and I are at the dinner table, and I've cooked ribs and, um, and potato salad because that's something that he loves. And he sits down at the dinner table, and just out of ignorance, he says something like, it's not quite like my mom does it. And immediately... I'm offended. And you know my answer back is, well, you can go home to your mama and she can make you some ribs and some potato salad because it's going to be a long time before I ever cook for you again. Or something like, I've been out shopping this weekend and I come in with a bag and it's another pair of shoes because you always need another pair of shoes. And uh, he makes one of those comments like, you needed another pair of shoes. And I snap back and immediately he's offended because guess what? He takes that as me not valuing how much work and how much effort he puts into providing for our family. That I don't value his, uh, his role in my life and, and protecting me. I think as men, something that I seem to grasp or understand is that they, they treat that as a protection. And a, and a great responsibility, Mr. Frank has taught me that. He very much values that role of providing and caring for his family. And to spend frivolously sometimes is disrespectful and could cause offense in Mr. Frank's life. How about people? Miss Linda, do you love shoes? She loves purses. How many of you grew up in church? Ever heard the term church hurt? Church hurt. So for some reason, we come into this building, even though we know we're the most broken people here, but we expect everybody else to be saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. And then for some reason, we're surprised when, we're, when they're not. It's amazing because I'm here, so we're not. Like, let's just go ahead and establish that. And you're here, so we're not. 
But for some reason, we take the most offense in this environment because our expectations go unmet a lot of times because they're unrealistic. I remember when I was um, 17 years old, I was dealing with a church hurt issue. And uh, I'd just kind of been verbally attacked by somebody in leadership over me, and I was struggling to deal with it. And I went to church every day. I would skip family vacation just because I wanted to be at church. Um, and one day I came down the stairs on a Sunday morning, and I was not dressed and ready for the day. And my mom looked at me a little crazy, and she said, what do you think you're doing? And I said, well, I'm not going to church today. And she looked at me kind of funny. She said, well, why not? Because they're not going to treat me like that. You know, especially being in, being in ministry, you kind of get that mentality, I'm going to teach them a lesson, let them do it without me. They're not going to treat me like that. And my mama looked at me and she said, Christians are not easily offended. And I said, well, I am offended and I'm going to take a week to think about it. And she didn't want to let that go because my mom understood something about offense. You see, I could have put in one more post an offense that stopped me from my destiny because the local churches had a very strong part of what I'm called to do in my life. And my mom knew that. She recognized that. And she kind of gave me one more stern talking to, and I got my skirt on, and I went, and I sat on that stage, and I played. And I've probably never missed too many Sundays after that because my mom taught me a very valuable lesson about offense. Something else that, you know, stinks about our culture is we're always offended about this one thing and it shows up a lot it's racism the root of it is offense and it prevents us from loving and caring for people and you know why we do it we generalize we um we put something on a group of people based on their appearance or their socioeconomic status that could not most likely is not true and it happened to me in reverse the other day. Um, somebody was telling a story about, you know, how something had gone down. It was one of those ugly, you know, you hear them all the time on the news, one of those ugly stories about how something had gone down. And I actually started to take offense um, just because they had grouped like a, you know, I'm a 32-year-old white woman with a certain socioeconomic status. And based on that, I should feel a certain way about another group of people. And I don't feel that way about those people. And it actually offended me. I was offended that they would group me into a group of people who didn't like somebody. But as quickly as it happened to me, I realized, don't build a fence. Because it'd be just as easy for me as it is for you. And I get it, it's painful. Now, my situation was not painful. It just kind of tweaked me wrong that day. But there are real pains, and there are real times when people experience hurt. Uh, you know, and, and it's easier. It's easier to build the fence it's easier to put their, our response on somebody else's behavior. And I get it, it's painful. And we, build, we actually build the fence to protect ourselves from the pain. We think if I block that off, nobody can go there and mess with that emotional carnage. Because it hurts. But I'm going to tell you the truth, you're going to feel pain regardless. You have to decide whether it's the pain of progress or the pain of passivity. You see, you decide whether you move forward from that place and face a new mountain or whether you stay in that place. And the unfortunate thing about staying here, and this is where so many people stay, is that the light of the sun actually has the inability to shine on you because you're in the shadows of doubt and fear and anxiety, and you're just trapped there. And you don't have to be. Taylor Swift sings this song, Look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. It's a lie. 
And she's selling that to a culture. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do because the power of God and the Spirit of God is living on the inside of you, making things and change easy for you that you could never do in and of your own strength. So week two, I just want to reiterate, take down the fence. It's not worth it. You cannot approach your mountain by faith if you're holding on to that. This week, I kind of want to talk to you about one more thing, and then Pastor Stephen's going to crush it next week. He gets the fun one. But uh, I want to talk to you about doubt. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Mark 11, 22 through 25 in the New Living Translation. I'm going to read it from UKD. This is the one I didn't put in my notes. It says, Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. When I read through this, knowing that belief and not having doubt was kind of my piece to the puzzle, I kind of checked myself a little bit. I was like, how do you have no doubt? Like That seems a little bit unattainable to me. Because if we're honest, especially in our spiritual walk, we have a lot of struggle to believe a lot of things. Like, we struggle to believe that we're forgiven. We struggle to believe that we're forgiven for the things that we did and actually the things that we still do. Those are probably the harder ones. We struggle to believe that our bodies can be healed and that he wants us well because we see situations and circumstances and we feel symptoms. We struggle to believe um, that our finances can be restored and that he wants to provide for us after all the mess we personally made of our own stuff. And we struggle sometimes to even believe that he has the ability to soften a heart and restore a relationship, maybe with a spouse or a child or that person who's made you miserable at Christmas dinner for the past 15 years. We struggle. We struggle to believe those things because sometimes we come up against the same mountains over and over and over and dealing with them is a process. And I want to show you that today because ultimately we decide whether our doubts develop us or they defeat us. And so if you can get a new perspective, if I can help you get a new perspective on doubt this morning, hopefully it can propel you into that place where uh, mountain-moving faith is available to you. You see, a lot of times we stop ourselves in our own tracks because we don't want to be honest about our doubts. It's kind of uh, frowned upon to be honest about your doubt in, in Christian circles. Like everybody wants to pretend they've got it all together and that they're, you know, myself included. Guess what? I have my doubts, especially in the past three years of my life. I mean, if you know my story, I have my doubts. But those doubts have propelled me into a greater stage of faith than I've ever walked in my entire life because I have to ask the question. Pastor Stephen said something to me this morning. I can't remember exactly how he, how he said it, but he said something was going to force him into a different uh, level of leadership. And it was a problem. But if he doesn't ever ask the question, if he doesn't ever ask himself, hey, maybe where does this need a tweak, or what should we do here, or doesn't ever consult the Holy Spirit about it, if he never asks the question because he's afraid of the answer, there will never be growth. And honestly, 
the answer, he already knows, but the answer is actually another level for himself personally. To be able to lead, he has to do it somewhat at his own expense. He has to go there before we go there. And I think that's why we sometimes don't want to ask the question because we're afraid of the answer. Many times, you remember if you ever grew up, if you grew up in church, you were like afraid of that altar call moment because of what if God called you to be a missionary to somewhere you did not want to go? Like it was terrifying. Like I would just not go like, uh, I did some missions and um, I came back happy to be on this side. Uh, I want you to write something down. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It is the means to overcome it. You see, I don't know if it's our own uh, interpretation or if people teach this and we believe it, but there's this idea that for a mountain to move in your life, you have to have a large deposit of faith. And that's actually counter to Scripture because most of you know that Scripture actually says it's a mustard seed. That's one of the smallest things that you can measure. But faith, I want to pose to you for your consideration, is maybe faith is actually consistent small deposits compounded by a faithful God. You see, we take this borehole concept and we don't think it's significant. Josh, where'd you go? Come make me another one. You see, we don't have the perspective of the engineer. We don't have the perspective of how the mountains move. Or Josh doesn't. Let's pretend I do and he doesn't because that's fun for me. <laughs> Josh doesn't have the perspective that I have and the, the power of the dynamite. All Josh sees is what he's about to do. And I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I sat here while he did one yesterday, and it's kind of tedious and annoying. It doesn't actually bring you any sense of gratification. It feels unrelated to the miracle-working power. But the truth is that we minimize this process, and then we don't experience the miracle-working power because we've not let the light of the Holy Spirit shine on those places where he can create the explosive power, and we skip the process. Or one of the things that we're infamous for, I'm going to have to hold it because he's wiggling it, is we stick the dynamite on the side and we get a shallow explosion. We get a little bit of movement, but we really don't get enough of the power to create any change in our lives. And then we're actually frustrated with God. This happens all the time. We kind of go halfway in and we just kind of dab our toe in and uh, we ride that fence figuratively. And then we wonder why we don't see the things that we read about and the things that we hear about. And we actually, Pastor Tiffany says this at the end of last service, it was so powerful. We see people who do have the fullness of God and the power of God working in their lives, and it actually irritates us with them. But the truth is, and that's annoying, isn't it? You can admit it, that's annoying. But with no boreholes, there's no dynamite. You see, faith, is what Josh is doing right now. It's using the seemingly insignificant, what's that thing called, baby? Saul. Saul. <laughs> What'd you call it earlier today? A knife. Whatever. We were talking about some other thing that had a different name. Then remember the electric one, like a... Oh, a Saul-Zaw. <laughs> Josh used the seemingly insignificant thing in his hand believing that God would take what he offered him and multiply it. And sometimes we quit 
We quit because this seems ridiculous. This honestly seems like there's no, pow- there's no power in this. How could there be power in this? There's only power in this, right? But this is ineffective without this. And so many times we don't have the perspective to see the power of this. You see, the triumph of your faith is not actually the complete eradication of your doubt. The triumph of your faith is the ability for the light to shine in the deepest, darkest recesses of your heart. The triumph of your faith is when you can look at a mountain and say, I don't understand this, but I trust you for this. When you can say, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will only walk there because I know that I will not die there. And we quit. But the reality is that God's greatest gifts are most often wrapped in doubt. This is why, how many of you have someone in your life or in your childhood experiences who, was, who had a terrible gift givers? Anybody that the grandmother like always gave you the worst gifts ever? And then you've got the people, we've got a couple of hands, the knitted sweaters. And then, but there's, you got some, you got a few of them in your, in your closet. But there's also those people in your life who are like the most extravagant gift givers. And not even that it costs a lot of money, but they took the time to know you. And every single time, they come up with like this, these amazing gifts and you wonder how. My mother-in-law is an incredible gifter. I hope she's listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> my mother-in-law is like the most incredible gift giver. She really is. Like sometimes I'm like, does she stalk me? She gives me the exact books I wanted and I didn't even know I wanted them. And I'm like, does she like follow my Pinterest or my Instagram? Like she's on to me that good. And see, it's different for me because I grew up a different way. I grew up in more of a controlled environment where, uh, you know, you made your Christmas list and you mailed it in to Santa. Or, uh, you know, even for your birthday, like, you kind of just said what you wanted and you knew the dollar amount and you just kind of picked something in that range and you said, that's what I want and that's what you got. And it completely eliminated the element of surprise. It was controlled. And when I married Josh, it was actually so challenging for me. I didn't like it at first. Because it was uncomfortable. How would somebody who didn't know me get me a gift that I would want? And I think sometimes we treat God that way. We're afraid that we're going to be disappointed. And so we actually cancel the birthday parties and we cancel Christmas because we are so worried about being disappointed about the gift. But the reality is, and you guys know this, the more you know the giver, the more you begin to trust the goodness of the gift. So today I hope that I can kind of help you excavate some doubts, create some boreholes, and maybe we could find that childlike excitement and adventure in trusting God. Again, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 10, 17. Where's Carlos with my timer? What time is it? I got it. It says, so then faith cometh by hearing. I'm in the King James, so Carson has it on on the screen. Or I'm sorry, Katie does. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing... By the word of God. If I want to get my childlike faith back and my excitement for opening the, the gifts of God that look like they're wrapped in doubt, but honestly, the best things in life are inside of those things, how do I begin to work on those doubts? And this scripture says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the what? The word of God. So in the Greek, there's actually two words for the word of God. Uh, one of them is lagos. 
and it actually is kind of refers to the written word, or it's when something gives a count of something, or a saying, or uh, things that are written, and then there's another word in there called the rhema word of God. And the rhema word actually has like a more powerful connotation to it. Kind of has like some force backing it when it's used. It kind of sees itself to fulfillment almost. And that's the word that's used here. So if the word is saying, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the rhema, how do we get the rhema? How do we get to the place where the rhema eliminates our doubts? And the rhema encourages us and takes us one step and one borehole at a time into the stage of mountain-moving faith. I want to read you an account of it happening with Jesus in Matthew 3. I'm going to start in uh, verses 16 and 17. I'm in the, back in the New Living. This is, And after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. I'm going to keep going into chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time the devil came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scripture says, people do not live by bread alone but by every rhema that comes from the mouth of God. You see, this is kind of the the beginning of Jesus' ministry and power. He spent 30 years of his life in the development stage. Jesus has spent 30 years boring holes. And when he's baptized, you see here it says that the Spirit of God descended like a dove and settled on him. And then the same Spirit led him into the wilderness to face the temptation. And he went 40 days and 40 nights. And when that was over, the devil comes to him and says, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus responded actually with the logos. And he says, it's written. People do not live by bread alone, but by every rhema that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus had the ability to bypass the process and perform the miracle. But he knew that that would actually not be honoring God because You know, we want results, but God wants relationship. And Jesus was teaching us that when he resisted that temptation to bypass relationship, that we can do the same thing. Man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by relationship. And we see that process unfold because it happened through the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus' life. You see, the rhema word is when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the logos for the specific situation and creates confidence, assurance, and belief in your life. I want to tell you a story um, about a friend of mine, Carson. Many of you guys know Carson. He's right up here on the front row. I asked her permission this morning if I could share the story because it, honestly, it just, it just opens it up in a new way, even for me. Uh, about three months ago, Carson was leaving the church, and she was kind of going out this way to cross these lanes of traffic. And as she started to pull forward, the Holy Spirit kind of slowed her back a little bit. And she, she just kind of paused. It wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary, but she waited. And she waited for a bigger break in traffic. Thank God, because when Carson pulled into the traffic to go the other way, her car cut off, like stalled out completely in the traffic. And she's left sitting here in a little teeny tiny 
Lancer, Mitsubishi Lancer, with cars coming at her any minute, T-boning her. And by the grace of God, Carson's car rolls back out of the traffic. And I think she kind of had a little bit of a breakdown right then and there, realizing like, oh my God, that could have been the end of my life, or that could have been a terrible situation for me. That could have gone completely differently. And was it a Tuesday or a Monday? I know Tuesday you came back and told us the story. It was a Monday or a Tuesday. It was early Tuesday. So we had Tuesday night prayer that night, and uh, Carson shared with us a little bit about her experience because over time, she had been boring some holes, trying to process something that could have been destructive in her life and figuring out where, what the Holy Spirit was doing in her life. And one of the things that happened was Carson kind of had an epiphany about there are so many things left in my life that I want to do. And what if that had been it? What if that had been my last moment? What if that had been all I ever accomplished for God on this earth? And there was kind of a list. She's the girl with the vision board. Now, it's all abstract. If you walk into her office, you're not going to be sure what any of it means. Caleb asks her every day, like, what is that one? But Carson has vision for, for bigger mountains than the one she's up against right now. For bigger victories and, and greater things in her life. That, but she realized in that moment, without the help of the Holy Spirit, that could have been the last one. And so something changed on the inside of her. And over the course of the last three months, Carson has changed her life radically. She's lost 50 pounds. And I know that's a, that's a mountain for a lot of people, like weight and, and that struggle with your physical body and your, even... You know, one of the things she doesn't struggle with, thank God, is um, her insecurities. That was not why Carson changed. The Holy Spirit actually changed Carson from the inside out. You see, we try to deal with fruit, and he's trying to deal with the root. Something just switched in her, and I can come in this office drinking 1,100-calorie cups of coffee and eating brownies for lunch and having milkshakes for dessert, and Carson is actually more content with a bag of carrots and a bag of salad. Honest to God, I'm not kidding you. Really? She seems to be. Anyway, she does not even feel. <laughs> She's like, uh. But she doesn't even remotely give in to the temptation because she sees the results of, of the Holy Spirit working in her life. The power came in the borehole. But if she'd never let the Holy Spirit do that work, just been another shallow explosion. It would have been another one of those fad diets or another one of those times we try to change something, but we try to change it from the outside. We never deal with the thing that's happening on the inside of us, and that is the real mountain. Something that actually happened a couple weeks before that, though, is what I think is the most significant part of the story. It's something the Holy Spirit just brought to my remembrance this morning as I was getting ready. Do you know why Carson heard the Holy Spirit so clearly when she was getting ready to pull out? Because he has whispered something to her two weeks prior to that. And it's actually ludicrous when you think about it. But he has said to Carson, I need you to stop watching The Bachelor. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> Why did you stop watching The Bachelor? 
because it was wasting time. You could have been listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't bad. The bachelor wasn't bad. The time thief was the thing that was so dangerous because the Holy Spirit knew that Carson had to be in tune or her life would have probably ended out on Highway 158. And we forget, we forget the importance of these moments. And we, we don't have the perspective sometimes to see those because we're not asking the Holy Spirit who does have the perspective. We're trying to, we've got shovels and we're trying to move this stuff out of the way on our own. Because this just doesn't seem to be much. And it isn't much until you put it in the hands of a God who just compounds our faith. If you have a retirement account, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you're just putting in a little. But you believe that at the retirement age, that compounding interest is going to just protect you and sustain you and carry you through those seasons of your life. And faith is the same way. We put in for the time when we need it, but we don't know when that time's going to be. For Carson, it was three months ago. And we've got to teach ourselves to lean in and discipline ourselves, if I can use that word. I don't mean in a wearisome way, but discipline ourselves. How do you get rhema? Well, the best way to receive more rhema is to spend more time in the logos. Because rhema, a rhema word burns on the fuel of a logos fire. And so every single day, you need it. You need the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit and his protection and his surrounding. But sometimes we forget to get in position for the protection. Now we have, you know, the grace of God and all of those things. But the real power, the real power is in the daily leading. And our brains are built on some levels, as Pastor Tom Tony shared with us, to kind of create loops and habits. And we shortcut our way into things. You know, if you've ever driven to work, you go basically the same way every day, the same route. And there's been so many days where I've put the mail on the, on the center console, and I've gotten in my car to drive. And the post office is, like, literally a quarter mile from our house. Like, I haven't gone far. And I've already forgotten that because my mind has tried to eliminate all the processing power that I need. And it's just trying to autopilot me. Many of you probably don't remember how you got here this morning because you've done it so many times that you slip into autopilot. And our faith slips into autopilot. And we miss things that the Holy Spirit's trying to show us along the way. We forget to drop things into the mail. We forget to pick up the things we need to sustain our life. How many times do you forget the grocery store? I'm terrible about it. And it's good to study patterns. That's why we read the word. We look for patterns and we look for the ways of God to know him. That's how we know him. But we can't live solely off of a pattern. That's why Jesus said, it's good that I go. Because we build so many of our patterns of off, off of what he did, but he didn't do the same thing too many times over and over. He usually did it a different way every time. Because he said, I say and do what I hear my father say and do. Even Jesus himself, the word incarnate, was led by the Spirit. Because he knew that's where the power, that's where the miracle working power was. But I'm afraid too many times that we kind of just, I don't think, I don't know why we don't pursue the relationship. Because I think sometimes it just doesn't seem necessary. 
And it's a slow fade. It happens so many times. The older I get and the more I'm, you know, in this lifestyle, I see the slippery slope and the slow fade in people's lives. And they don't think it's significant that they've stopped boring holes. And then they get the wrong kind of explosion and they wonder why. They get the destructive kind. They get the kind that takes out the buildings around them and just creates so much havoc and so much destruction. It's because they didn't place the dynamite in the proper position. We've got to ask the Holy Spirit to be our guide. We've got to take the time to dig the boreholes or we won't ever see the mountains move. I want to read you a couple of scriptures about Ramah. I'm going to take you on a little marathon here probably more of a sprint. John 15, 7. I'm going to stay in the new living. It says, but if you remain in me and my rhema remain in you, ask anything you want and it will be granted. Luke 1, 37 and 38. It says, for the rhema of God will never fail. You've read that a million times, but it, in a lot of translations, it says, for with God, no thing shall be impossible. But the actual Translation is, for the rhema of God will never fail. And this is when the angel of the Lord came to Mary and says, you're going to give birth to the Savior. And that was definitely an impossibility in her life. But her response back to him was, I am the Lord's servant. May every rhema you have said about me come true. That's a yieldedness. That's a yieldedness that we need every day in our lives. John 6, 63, the spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very rhema I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And another one, you can just write down these references and go back to them later, but I want you to see something. It's Ephesians 6, 16 through 18. It says, in addition to all these things, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil Put on salvation as your helmet. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God. Then he says something that's great, and I'm not going to touch it, but because I'm going to save it for next week. But it says, pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. See, there's another piece to this, and I'm going to intentionally leave it out because... I know Pastor Stephen has something that he wants to share with you next week that's going to really take this thing to the final level that it needs to be to work in your life. He's going to talk to you about the dynamite. There's one more piece, and I want to encourage you to be here, but before I do that, I want to pray with you. Is that all right? Father, in the name of Jesus. I ask you right now that you would begin a work in every single heart and every single life today. I thank you that you would show us the areas of our lives and the boreholes that we need to expose to the light of your spirit. Because we again let faith arise in our heart and we put ourselves in the perspective of knowing that though it seems little in our side and in our hands, that it's great and it's compounded and it can be great, greater in your hands. God, that the miracle working power is not our responsibility. Our responsibility are the inner things. And so we ask right now by your Holy Spirit that you would do a work. You know, we sing these songs about your spirit working and your spirit moving and you're making a way. And we ask that you do that in our hearts.
We ask for relationship over results because we know that with relationship comes results and you cannot have it the other way around. So we thank you for your spirit. We thank you that there are things that the spirit of God can do that only he can do in our lives and we submit ourselves to that and we yield ourselves to that and we ask it all in the precious name of Jesus and everybody says, Amen.